Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel. As we work our way through this fourth Gospel, we're in John chapter 13. Our focus this morning will be verses 31 to 38, but I'll pick up reading at verse 18. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped, uh, dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he, had, he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So then, or so when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We know it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And we pray that even now you would cause us to reflect upon this passage, to see the glory of the Son, to see our need as disciples to express love for one another. And may we take heed to what is spoken here concerning the denial by Simon Peter. Help us to be a watchful and a prayerful people. As we sang, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. So we pray that by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, you would keep us, you would cause us to press onward by your grace and for your glory. 
And as well, God, we pray for any and all who've come here this morning dead in their trespasses and sins. We pray that today would be the day of, of salvation, that you'd open their hearts to receive the truth. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So may this be a day of rejoicing in heaven over sinners who repent. Forgive us now for all sin and uncleanness and unrighteousness. Wash us in that precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and send forth the Spirit to guide us as we consider your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned last time, we are in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. So just prior to his death, this is taking place on the Thursday, and of course Friday he will go to the cross. We refer to that in history at least as Good Friday. So Jesus wants to encourage the disciples. He wants to impart wisdom to the disciples. They have the task after his ascension on high to go therefore and to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize those that are made, and then to teach them. We see that in the book of Acts in terms of proclamation, disciple making, and then church planting. So the Lord wants to encourage his disciples. So I've read the section where he gets rid of the betrayer. He identifies Judas Iscariot. There's a bit of a puzzle there. Why didn't they hear that? I think that Jesus spoke specifically to John. John was very close in terms of proximity. He said what he said in terms of dipping the bread. And so there was a bit of confusion when Judas got up. They didn't really know why it was. But in verse 30, we read that the traitor or the betrayer is now gone. And then if you notice the language used by our Lord in verse 33, he says, little children. So he speaks intimately now to the disciple group. The traitor's gone, the betrayer's gone, the unclean one is gone. So he wants to address his disciples. And he does so in three ways. First, he speaks of his own glory. So we see the glory of the Son in verses 31 and 32. Secondly, the love of the disciples in verses 33 to 35. And then finally, the denial by Peter in verses 36 to 38. So notice first with reference to the glory of the Son in verses 31 and 32. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. So again, the context, the departure of Judas now sets the, uh, the context for Jesus' disciples and them alone. And this declaration, now the Son of Man is glorified. We know as we've studied through John's gospel, there's been this emphasis on the hour. And the hour is the time of Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, if you go back to chapter 12, specifically at verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Drop down to verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then again in the immediate context in John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart. So the now points to the hour, and the hour is that time of his death on the cross and his resurrection again. And it's at that point that Jesus speaks of his glory. And he speaks of it as already having been completed. He's not going to renege. He's not going to turn back. He has set his face like a flint, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, and he is steadfast in Jerusalem. He is going to die. He is going to be raised again the third day. So he can speak of it as a present reality when he says there in verse 31, now the Son of Man is glorified. 
Cyril says, but the perfection and fullness of glory was surely in the fact that he suffered for the life of the world and that by his own resurrection, he opened up a way for the resurrection of all. So what Jesus is saying here is that this event, the hour, is going to mean glory for himself. It is going to mean glory for his Father, and the Father is going to glorify him. And that's precisely what he says. Notice in verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Again, the proximity to the time. It's Thursday. It's going to be Friday when he goes to that cross. He speaks of it as having been accomplished, and he realizes that that glory is predicated upon the cross work. Prior to this, notice in John 12, again, verses 27 and 28. Just read verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus didn't come first and foremost to set an example. He certainly is that, but that's not the primary emphasis that we find in the New Covenant or in the Old Covenant prophesied concerning the Messiah that would come to save his people from their sins. Not by just setting a good example on how to love one another, how to be kind to one another. We're not that. We're not loving. We're not kind. We are sinful people. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Christ came in order that we might be saved. The apostle Paul says that the Jews, they request signs and the Greeks want wisdom. But Paul says we preach Christ and him crucified. So the primary purpose for which our Lord came was not simply to set an example of how man is to love one another. In other words, it's not simply exemplary, but he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says this all throughout his ministry to Zacchaeus. He says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He says that in in Matthew 9, after the salvation of Matthew himself, and then the Pharisees start to complain and grumble because Jesus, along with Matthew, is with a bunch of other sinners. Jesus says it's not the, 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 the healthy that need the physician, but rather it's the sick. He came to save his people from their sins. And that's what he highlights here. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then notice in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. So at the cross, our God Most High would be glorified. As well, God Most High would glorify His Son, who is God Most High. When we ask the question, how is Jesus glorified? It's not according to His divinity. In John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no increase in His glory as God. There's no diminishment of his glory as God. It is essential to him. What is unique here is that he now has, in the language of 114, assumed our flesh. The Son, or rather the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So the glory comes as a result of the assumption of our humanity by the Son of God. In other words, the Father is well pleased with the Son and then confers upon him this glory. Again, it's not because of Godness. He is God. He never ceases to be God, and you cannot strip him or add to him any degree of glory. It's according to his humanity. It's according to his God manness uh, ness, that he assumed our humanity. He lays down our, uh, his life for us. You see something similar in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 at the Great Commission, our Lord says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not as he's God, 
He never stopped being God. He never ceased being divine. He didn't substitute humanity for divinity. The glory of the incarnation is that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich in him. So the glory of the incarnation is in, in the assumption of our humanity. It's not in the laying aside of his divinity. It's not in the laying aside of his glory. So with the Father and the Spirit, they are glorified. So according to his humanity, when he assumes our, our flesh, when he lives for us, when he dies for us, when he's raised again for us, the Father is pleased with that. You see that in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Again, not true as word. He always had that. But as the, the, the word became flesh, he has this authority, this majesty, this glory conferred upon him as a result of his mediatorial work on our behalf. So when the priest goes to the cross to lay down his life for the sheep, the father is glorified in the work that the son has done. And then the father reciprocally glorifies the son for the work that has been accomplished. So in all this, we ought to see practically that our salvation brings glory to God. In other words, it is a blessed thing. It is a wonderful thing. In the last hour, we went through the, the confession in chapter 10 on effectual calling. And our brother Cam led that study, and he pointed us to Ezekiel 36. And it's interesting, in Ezekiel 36, you have sort of the background to what we call regeneration of the new birth. In fact, Jesus chides Nicodemus in John 3, says, are you the teacher in Israel, and you don't understand these things? What's the point? You should have understood these things. Where God says, I will take out your old stony heart. I will put in a new fleshly heart. I will give you my spirit. I will give you my law. I will write those things on your heart. All the benefits promised by God in the old covenant are yea and amen in the new covenant through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what is intriguing there in Ezekiel 36 is that a couple of times God says, I don't do this for you. Now, he does because we benefit and we are then enabled to go to heaven, but he does it for his name's sake. In other words, we proclaim the gospel such that sinners are saved so that God is glorified, so that God is magnified, so that God is exalted. Even in our soul winning, even in our missions, it is God who is uppermost. It is God who is foremost. It's for his honor and praise. Isn't this how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Before we get to our food, before we get to our protection, before we get to uh, our forgiveness, what does God or what does Jesus teach us? Hallowed be thy name. There's a priority in the Lord's Prayer and we're secondary. It's God's name, it's God's kingdom, and God's will that comes first. So when you look at verses 31 and 32, and if you're ever having a, a sort of a bad day and you're wondering, oh, I, I don't always live as I ought. Well, you don't. I, I need more of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you do. But you are a conquered, blood-bought trophy of our Lord Jesus Christ that redounds to the praise and glory and honor of the Most High. Brethren, that is a good thing to contemplate. And I think that then serves as the impetus for us to engage in a life that is well-pleasing to God. In fact, turn to the book of Ephesians for something parallel in this connection. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. It's a beautiful statement that confirms what I'm trying to get across here. 
in a way that's much better because it's Paul. But notice in Ephesians 3, specifically at verse 8, to me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. He's basically transitioned between the doctrinal section in chapters 1 and 2 and the practical section in chapters 4 to 6. He's placing himself or locating himself in redemptive history how he has the unique privilege to be the apostle to the Gentiles, such that the mystery of God is now made known, specifically being that Gentiles are included in the promises, the covenant promises made to Israel. So notice in verse 8, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Christ. Now notice this language in verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Get that, verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to these principalities. So I think what Paul is saying is that if angels have an occasion to look down upon a church gathering like ours, and you know, you hope they do. There's also a reference to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The angels aren't just sort of, you know, off in some distant place in eternity, strumming harps and floating on clouds. They, they are God's ministers and as well, God's witnesses. Well, when the angels look down upon, upon a group like this, do you think they say, boy, I'm so glad that guy exercised his free will to come to Jesus. I am so glad that that girl who, who was having these difficult problems in terms of her own life has, has overcome them and has now sealed her fate with Jesus Christ. That's not what they're doing. They're looking at us and praising God. They're looking at us and glorifying God. They're looking at us and, and praising the redemptive reality, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the glory of God is manifest at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he speaks to here in the upper room. He wants the disciples to know that whatever the hour brings in terms of shame, ignominy, pain, suffering, blood, and ultimately death, he wants them to know that this is the hour of glory, the glory of the Son, as the Word became flesh, the glory of of the Father, as he is pleased with the work of the Son. Your salvation means a lot to you, but it better mean as well the glory of God Most High. Isn't this the prophet Isaiah as well? He shall see the travail of his soul and be what? Be satisfied. In other words, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What was the joy set before him? The rescue of a miserable lot like you and I from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So the glory of God is calculated here to encourage the disciples that whatever the hour brings, it isn't a diminishment of his glory, but rather in terms of his role as mediator, it is the pinnacle of his glory. This is an encouragement to them, and I hope it is to us. Your salvation is not owing to your good choices, it's not owing to your good behavior, it's not owing to your law, uh, lawfulness, it is owing to the glory of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. 
And then notice, secondly, he speaks specifically to the disciples with reference to love. He mentions his departure in verse 33. Again, that term of endearment, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, the, near, uh, the nature of the following discourse, he is encouraging them, building them up. And certainly when he gets to verses 34 and 35, this is something they're going to need to demonstrate. Now, if you've been coming to this church at, you know, for any time at all, you'll know that we really love doctrine. We really love scripture and we make a lot of emphasis on that. But you know, Paul says, if we have all that, we have the gifts of tongues of angels and we don't have love, then we're, we're useless. We're, we're worthless. And so that's what Jesus commends to the disciples. The men that are armed with the truth, armed with the spirit, must be clothed with love when they go out on that missionary endeavor to call sinners unto faith in Jesus Christ. But before he gets there, specifically in verses 34 and 35, listen to what he says. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. Again, the cross is coming. The hour has arrived. He knows its imminence. He knows his death is, is on, the, on, uh, uh, on tomorrow. And then as well, he says, uh, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. He had said this to the Jews on two occasions in John's gospel. Look at chapter 7, specifically at verses 32 to 36. Chapter 7, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So there's a lot of confusion about this statement. But in the disciple group, there's confusion as well. Because when we get to verse 36, Peter doesn't hear anything about the new commandment. Peter hears the little while. Peter hears that I'm going away from you. We'll get to Peter in a moment, but on this occasion, Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going away. Notice in chapter 8 as well. Chapter 8, specifically at verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So back to John 13, he makes this statement to the disciples. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. So the words that he speaks here are the same on the one hand as he spoke to the unbelieving Jews. But on the other hand, notice what he does say to Peter in verse 36. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. So to the Jews, there's a closed door. To the reprobate, there is no access. But to the elect of God, to the disciple of Jesus Christ, you're not going to go with them to the cross because that's not your purpose. You can't atone for the sins of your people. But you will eventually go to where he is. You won't undergo the hour, but you'll receive the glory and the crown in that age to come. So to the unbelieving Jews, he condemns them. 
Basically, he says to them, you're going off to everlasting punishment. You're going off to hell. But for the disciples, you're going to seek me, but you can't come because you can't endure the cross. This is not your hour, but rather it is mine. But because of that hour, I'm going to receive you to myself. And that's precisely what he addresses in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you, not for those reprobate Jews, not for the heathen that don't believe, not for the false religionist that, that choose a, chooses an alternate way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He prepares mansions. He prepares an abode. He prepares through his own crosswork for us blessedness and wonderfulness and, and goodness and glory. If we're justified freely by his grace, we will be sanctified by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and we will one day be glorified and enter in to Emmanuel's land. So he lays that down for them to consider, and then on the heels of that, he gives them this new commandment. Notice in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. There's three contexts I think we need to appreciate here. First, the immediate. Notice in John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So because Jesus loves his own, I know this is going to sound revolutionary. His own must love each other. I know it's a tough one, but that's what he says. Because he loves us, because he lays down his life for us, because he cleanses us in his blood and clothes us in his righteousness, it's not because we love one another that we're saved. That's the consequence of us having been saved. So the immediate context is his love for the disciples, therefore encourages the disciples to love one another. But as well, secondly, the Old Covenant context. Didn't the Old Testament tell people to love each other? Yeah, it, it sure did. In fact, in our studies in the book of Leviticus on Wednesday night, I think I pointed out Leviticus 19 is the Old Covenant equivalent to 1 Corinthians 13. It's the great love chapter. How should love be manifest within the covenant community of Israel? And specifically in Leviticus 19, verse 18, at the second part, it says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So when we look at verse 34, we say a, a new commandment. That, that's not new necessarily. We've never been told to hate each other. We're to love each other as, as ourselves. I think the newness of the commandment is seen in the standard that is given. So notice what we see in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the standard. The newness of the new commandment here is the standard by which we're to love one another. So, so love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus saying here? Love your neighbor the way that I have loved you. Brethren, we don't love him as we ought. We don't love each other as we ought. Even on the best of days, when we're trying to be Leviticus 19, 18b sorts of guys and girls, and we love our neighbor as ourselves, we still fall woefully short. The standard in this new covenant arena is love as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
John Gill says, as brethren in the same family, children of the same father, and fellow disciples with each other, by keeping and agreeing together, praying for one another, or praying one for another, bearing one another's burdens, forbearing and forgiving one another, admonishing each other, and building up one another in faith and holiness. And this he calls a new commandment. That is a very excellent one, as a new name and a new song denote excellent ones. Or it is so called because it is set forth by Christ in a new edition of it and newly and more clearly explained than before and being enforced with a new argument and pattern never used before. So yeah, love your neighbor as yourself to be sure, but love one another just as I have loved you. Now, when we reflect upon the love of Jesus, we know first and foremost that it is constant. It's constant. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 13. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So that means our love for one another must be constant. We can be fair weather fans, can't we? We can be those sorts of people as well. As long as you're lovely, then I'll love you back. You see, that's not what you find in the exposition in the New Covenant. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And you're going to raise your hand and you say, well, she's not really lovely today. That doesn't matter. That's not the predicate. Our obedience is never conditioned upon the object loved. Our obedience is conditioned upon the fact that God commands us to love. Wouldn't it be nice? Well, she's not lovely today, so I'm not going to love her as I ought. Or conversely, you know, he's being kind of an ogre today or a tyrant, so I'm not going to submit to him as I ought. There's no if-then conditionalness in terms of our obedience to God's holy word. As the blood-bought children of God, we will learn later in this discourse that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Again, not unto salvation, but because we have been saved, and this is the consequent, the fruit, or the effect of God's justifying grace. So Jesus' love, in the first place, is constant. As well, I've already alluded to this, Jesus' love is self-sacrificial. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, no, not that that's bad. Again, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't love your neighbor as yourself, but this love as I have loved you suggests self-sacrifice. Again, we appreciate it in the husband-wife relationship. I mean, that's one flesh with you, right? That's Paul's argument in Ephesians chapter 5. Of course, a husband's going to take a bullet for his wife. Of course, a, I mean, you better. Of course, a husband's going to jump on the grenade for his wife. Of course, the husband's going to stand up against the thugs for his wife because he's supposed to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Do you see what Jesus is saying? It's not just your wives. I mean, if anybody ever lobs a grenade into this building, it'll be curious to see what happens. Everybody flees and runs. Ah, I got to get out of here. And I'm not suggesting that's the worst response. But is there going to be the one that jumps on it? Is there going to be the one that loves self-sacrificially? What does Jesus say in Matthew 20? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the love of Jesus is constant. The love of Jesus is self-sacrificing. And as well, the love of Jesus in this context and elsewhere is towards sinners. I've already mentioned this, brethren. Your love for fellow sinners is not predicated on their behavior. 
Insofar as you do good today, then I'll love you. Insofar as you do what I think you should do, I'm going to love you. It's kind of like the golden rule in Matthew 7, 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It doesn't say do unto others insofar as they do unto you. Do unto others what you would like for them to do. So you can't argue, well, they don't treat me that way, so I'm not. That's not the nature of the command. The nature of the command is to treat them the way that you want to be treated. It's a bit of a different spin, isn't it? We like conditional love. We like to, you know, filter everything through what we approve of. And insofar as you're performing, then I will love you. The love for Jesus in this context that is constant, that is self-sacrificial, is directed to sinners. It's not directed to them as, you know, they ought to be. It is directed to them as they are. Now, through the sanctifying power of his Holy Spirit, they, they get better. They grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, but just listen to what he says. You love one another as I have loved you. That's the calling that we have as God's people relative to this love. But then notice what he says. This is what identifies you as Jesus' disciples. Notice in verse 35. He says, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you subscribe to the second London Confession of Faith. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you've read Burkhoff cover to cover. All, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you've got Turretin and you have even read them. That's not what he says, brethren. And I don't want to negate truth because it's not an either or. Sometimes you get this in Christianity. Well, we, we just need to be about loving Jesus. It doesn't really matter what we believe. Yes, it does. But as well, we, we only need to believe. Yes, we do. We need theological accuracy. We need doctrinal content. We need confessions like our confession. But we need to bathe it in love or our, our response to others in love. That's what he's saying here. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is an intriguing thing for us to consider. The love of the brethren, you can turn to 1 John chapter 3. The love of the brethren is self-confirming to the brethren. In other words, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love people we didn't formerly love. Have you ever looked around on a Sunday morning and said, you know, all things being equal, if I wasn't saved, I wouldn't ever be with these people? And I don't mean it like these people. I'm not saying it probably sounded like that, but that's not what I meant. But, but seriously, would you have hung out with me if you weren't a believer? I wouldn't want to hang out with me, and I am a believer. So, 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 so what brings us to this place where the principalities look down and they give glory to God most high? What is it? It's God's grace. Notice in 1 John chapter 3, specifically at verse, four, uh, verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now, John's not saying everybody in the church is your best friend forever. Everybody in the church is as possibly close to you as anybody could ever be. No. But there is this litmus test in terms of understanding whether or not we're in a state of grace. And one of those tests is we, we love each other. Sure, we need to grow in our love, 
Sure, we need to be more constant. We need to be more self-sacrificial. We need to understand that they're sinners. And even as redeemed sinners, they still got blemishes. They still got spots. They still got wrinkles. But we love each other, right? Yes, that, that, that's true. Well, why is that? Because we've passed from death to life. There's that internal testimony of the Holy Spirit working by and word, uh, with the word of God to convince us that, yeah, this is a good sign. Heathens and pagans don't love Christians. Heathen and pagans like to burn Christians. Heathen and pagans like to extracise or, or, or ostracate Christians. Heathen and pagans, when they rule, they rule with an iron hand over the Christians. But we love the Christians. Why is that? Because by God's grace, you've passed from death to life. And it is unique to the people of God that they love one another based on God's grace. But as we learn here in John 13 at verse 35, this as well is others confirming of grace in the heart. In other words, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Thomas made the observation, one who is in the army of a king should wear his emblem right? You've probably seen that in battle scenes. You've got somebody carrying the flag. In a battle, I'd rather carry a gun, but I know that somebody has to carry the flag because the flag represents whose side you're on, right? Even worse than the flag is the drummer. I, yeah, that's a target on your, all over you. There is this representation involved. There is an emblem of the king stamped upon us. He says, one who is in the army of a king should wear this emblem. The emblem of Christ is the emblem of charity. So anyone who wants to be in the army of Christ should be stamped with the emblem of charity. And again, brethren, it's not an either or proposition. Well, all they do at their church is study the Bible, as if that's bad. But we ought to do it with love, love for God, love for one another. Or those churches, well, you know, we don't really put a premium on, premium on doctrine here. We just, we just, you know, gush love all over each other. It's not an either or, it must be both and. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 tells us that love rejoices in truth. As well, there's this, this bit in, in, a, in an early Christian epistle to Dionysus, probably dated around somewhere between A.D. 150 to 225. And I think this is very instructive in a whole lot of sort of applications, but sp specifically for this one. In this epistle to Dionysus, we read, For Christians are not distinguished from the, the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. They don't, you know, just build houses on the top of Mount Sham and have their enclave there, and nobody gets up and nobody comes out. No, we live amongst the heathen. We live amongst the pagans. We live amongst the God-haters. We live amongst the, the, the rabble, right? The hoi polloi. We're, we're in it. We're in the world. We're not of it, but we're in it. We don't try to escape it. I mean, sometimes flying to the moon or going to northern Idaho seems pretty, pretty tempting, especially here in Canada, but, but we're not different that way. See, brethren, when you look at history and the Christian movement, you didn't say, well, those ones are Christians because look at their uniform. Those ones are Christians because look at what they do this particular way. 
Now, certainly if they see you going to church, that's something, you know, particular in terms of Sabbath and all that sort of thing. But back to Dionysus. For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. In other words, they look like everybody else, but when you start to boil them down, and I hope this doesn't happen, what will you find? Love to God and love to one another. The kind of love that's constant, the kind of love that's self-sacrificing, the kind of love that sees persons as sinners who nevertheless are to be loved because God commands it. So what differentiates the people of God isn't custom, language, dialect, or any sort of a thing like that, some eccentricity. But what distinguishes Christ's people, according to Christ himself in 1335, is that you love one another. By this, all men will know. It has a self-confirming influence, according to 1 John, but it has an others-confirming influence as well from John 13, 35. And we ask the question, I, I already mentioned, Peter just skips over this. He gets right to the little time, a little while. We'll get to that in just a moment, in, verse, uh, in just a little while, in verse 36. But, but, but did, they, did they internalize this? Was this something paramount in the minds of the men that were present with our Lord in this upper room? Well, Paul wasn't present in the upper room. I'm just going to call out a couple of texts in Paul. Romans 13 and 1 Corinthians 13. Did Paul think it was necessary for the people of God to love one another? Yes, absolutely, positively, he thought that. But what about Peter? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, another passage we looked at in our study this morning, but a bit of a different connection there. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, notice specifically what Peter says in verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Not just love each other kind of, love each other once in a while, love each other when they present as lovely, but love one another uh, fervently with a pure heart. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So he kind of fleshes out what it looks like to engage in brotherly love. And then notice in 4.8, well, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. And I love the rationale given here in the middle. For love will cover a multitude of sins. How do we facilitate remaining corruption and this demand to love? Love. That's how we facilitate it. In other words, when we love each other the way we're supposed to, God enables us to overlook some things that really bug us. I mean, I'm, I don't want to say husbands and wives. <laughs> I know my beloved has to look over, look past a few things that bug her. She's probably in her mind saying, a few. <laughs> what happens when we love each other? Love covers a multitude of sins. We're not fault-finding. We're not checklist-keeping. We're not always right there to pounce. Love facilitates the dwelling together in families, in churches, 
amongst the people of God. And Peter says, above all things have this. What about John? Turn back to 1 John. 1 John specifically at verses, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 3, verses 10 to 15. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his, and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And we've already read that. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Notice in verses 16 to 18. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. There's that self-sacrificial element. And we also ought to lay down our lives to the brethren. This is the new commandment of John 13, 35. He, he's expounding it for us in this passage. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Notice in chapter 4, specifically at verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Well, brethren, I should try and condition or qualify that must there. It's not, I'm going to love you because I have to. No, you're loving them because it flows out of a heart justified freely by God's grace. You've been cleansed in his blood and clothed in his righteousness. And what's the reflex? Well, it's to love him and to love one another. Of course, we need to grow. We need to get better. We need to be more mindful, more self-sacrificial, all that to be sure. But for those in Christ, loving brethren is not the chore that it is for the world. And then that brings us finally to the denial by Peter in verses 36 to 38. There's parallels in each of the synoptics here. Each of the synoptics has this incident where Peter denies the Savior. Notice the question in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And he doesn't say, what do you mean by this love thing? We, we got it in the old covenant. We're hearing it again in the new covenant. No, his mind is fixated and not wrongly so. He loves Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to go. If you were there, you wouldn't want Jesus to go either. He's Jesus, right? Being with him, having a part in him is everything. Being close in proximity to Jesus is the best thing ever. But Peter asks the question, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answers, verse 36b, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. You're not going to go to the hour. You're not going to go to the cross, but you're going to eventually go to the fruit of the hour and the fruit of the cross. As Edward Clink says, for as Jesus will shortly explain in chapter 14, Peter and the disciples will go where Jesus is going, but not at the same time, the hour, or in the same manner, the cross. Many are the children of God, but there is only one unique son. So he says to them, and that, that, that doesn't diminish the suffering of a Peter, the suffering of a James and a John. If you've read any of the early church history, how did Peter die? According to history, he was crucified upside down. Jesus is not saying, oh, you're going to just have this easy passageway into life eternal. But when he says, you're not going to follow me, he means in the hour on the cross to make satisfaction to divine justice for the sins of all those whom the Father had given him. You're, you're not participating in that. 
That's not your purview. That's not your responsibility. But as a result of that hour, you will follow me afterward. You will enter into Emmanuel's land. If you are justified freely by his grace, if you're being sanctified by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can count as sure as anything one day living in eternity with our blessed God and Savior. That's the reality for Christ's people. That's the blessedness that we have. We may in, indeed engage in a veil of tears in this present evil age. We get persecuted just like others. We get cancer just like others. We have hardship just like others. We have bankruptcy just like others. We have uh, oppression from the state just like others. Do you know what we have that isn't just like others? We have the promise of glory and eternity with Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where we're heading. And that's what he says to these disciples. You're not going to not have problems, but you're going to have a crown of glory when you exit from this present evil age. Now, notice on the heels of this, Peter's assertion. Peter says in verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Again, brethren, you understand it. We're not mocking Peter at this point. Oh, Peter, how dare you? But do remember that on three occasions, Jesus has announced that he must go to Jerusalem. He must be tried at the hands of wicked men. He must die and he must be raised again. Peter's not getting it. Peter's not following. Peter's not tracking here. And so Peter asks the simple question, Lord, why can I not follow you now? But then he makes this declaration that reveals something about his own heart that's not altogether good. I will lay down my life for your sake. Thomas says the same sort of thing in John chapter 11. As well, Peter does this, and what does it express? It expresses what we all have, self-confidence. It expresses a determination and a zeal that we don't necessarily have. On Wednesday night, we finished the book of Leviticus, and in chapter 27, after the chapter 26, you'd kind of think that's where it would end, blessings and curses for life in the land. Chapter 27 comes along. I think the connection is chapter 26, God vows or God promises or God makes oaths as to what he's going to do for the people. If they're faithful in the land, they'll be blessed. If they're unfaithful in the land, they'll be cursed. So chapter 27 now deals with our vows before God. And there are improper vows that people make. Now, I know that Peter's not saying, I solemnly affirm here by way of a vow that I'm going to do that. But it has the nature of vowing something. It has the nature of a resolution with something behind it. And I think it reveals to us his zeal, which is good and commendable, but zeal must always be according to knowledge. As well, it shows something of his self-confidence. I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go to the end with you. I'm ready to be there for you at the 11th hour onto the, 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 the close of your eyelids in death. The tendency toward pride, the tendency toward self-confidence, the tendency toward a lofty self-assessment and this hastiness. Listen to Pink. He says, outwardly, Judas, don't forget, we just got rid of the betrayer, just got rid of the apostate or reprobate. What does this little sort of short section tell us? You may not be an apostate. You may not be a, a reprobate, and in that, rejoice and thank God. But that doesn't mean you don't have a proneness to wander and a proneness to leave the God that you love. You better take heed. You better watch and pray. You better seek the Spirit's presence and power. You better understand that the best of men are men at best. 
So Pink says, outwardly, Judas posed as a disciple of Christ. Inwardly, Simon was a believer in him. The one exhibits the sin of madness uh, and madness of hypocrisy. The other, the danger and sad results of self-confidence. Look at it again. I will lay down my life for your sake. That provokes from our Lord the question of verse 38a. Will you lay down your life for my sake? John Gill, I think, gets at this well. He says, Christ speaks these words not as questioning, or as questioning rather, not Peter's sincerity, but his strength. It's not the sincerity that he expresses here. It's his strength and his, his ability to execute and carry through with it. See, we can all be filled with zeal and earnestness, and I'm going to go out and die for the Lord Jesus. What's Peter do when he's pressed by a servant girl? No, I don't know him. But your dialect betrays you. You're from the same. Well, no, no, I don't know him. I, I don't know him. And you know what the irony is? And this is bringing it to a close. Peter thinks that he's going to give his life for the Savior. But what's the point of the hour? The point of the hour is that the Savior gives his life for Peter. The Savior is the one in whom the covenant blessings of God are yea and amen. It's not Peter's fidelity. It's not Peter's perseverance. It's not Peter's enduring faith. It's Christ's blood and righteousness. Peter can't give his life for the Savior, but the Savior most certainly will give his life for Peter. And he'll give his life for all that the Father has given him. And the one who comes to him, he will certainly not cast out. From every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, we have the blessed promise of our Savior that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. With reference to this denial, I want to end here. Two points. First, Peter's denial. Second, the, the, the glory of our Lord. The nature of this denial demonstrates the remaining corruption of God's people. Peter's not a non-believer here. Jesus doesn't say, I can't believe you asked that question. Obviously, you're reprobate. Get out. Follow Judas. Wherever he's at, you go with him. You betray me with Judas. Maybe share the 30 pieces of silver. He doesn't do that. But what does it show us? It shows us there is a proneness to wander and a proneness to leave the God that we love. It shows us what Paul will say in Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25, is true. The good we wish to do, we don't do. The evil that we don't want to do, we find ourselves doing. Or what Paul says in Galatians 5.17, the spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. These two are, are contrary to one another so that you don't do the things you want. Brethren, remaining corruption is a reality. I'm not saying, therefore, go out and sin, but understand your state before a holy God and your absolute dependence upon that God and the resources purchased for you by our Savior King. As well, the nature of the denial highlights the graciousness of God in his dealing with his people. Because Jesus doesn't say, get out, follow Judas, be gone with you. What does it show us? It shows us what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember Peter, again, James and John? What do they do when they're called to watch and pray? They, they fall asleep. And Jesus says the, 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 the flesh or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I don't know what was in the mind of Jesus specifically there, but I can suggest that, that the psalmist reflects that kind of thinking in Psalm 103. 
verses 13 and 14, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Brethren, that should be a world of comfort for all of us. Again, not so that we'll be emboldened to go out and sin, but that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it underscores as well the carefulness that should be adopted by God's people. We're probably not as strong as we think we are. We're probably not as mighty as we think we are. Well, you know, it's been, it's like those, you know, those signs at work in a factory floor. It says, you know, 138 days with no incident. Do we live our lives like that? 138 days with no incident. 139 is going to be a breeze. Walk in the park. Take heed lest you fall, brethren. That's what Paul says. Not brethren, us, all of us together. Take heed lest you fall. Presumption, pride, arrogance, self-dependence, uh, self-dependence. Those are not commendable traits in scripture. Those are not, you know, God saying, good, yeah, be independent, live without the spirit. Yeah, be bold and proud and arrogant. Read the Proverbs of Solomon. What happens to the pride or to the proud man? He falls, he stumbles, he, he ends up in, in dire straits. Matthew Henry says that those often fall soonest and foulest that are most confident of themselves. Those are least safe that are most secure. May God give us that. May God instill in each of our hearts a careful walking before him, dependent upon the spirit with increased faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And we end on that high note. It's not Peter that gives his life for the savior. It's the savior who gives his life for Peter and for us. Have you ever mused on the fact that our religion is completely different than everybody else's? In our religion, it's him that seeks and saves. It's him who sacrifices and dies. It's him who performs obedience to the Father. In every other religion, it's the other way around. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to be good. I've got to engage in that. And, and, and then I get the reward. The beauty of the new covenant is that was heaped upon the Savior. His life of perfect obedience, his death as a sacrifice and a substitute on the cross, his resurrection again the third day, so that Paul could say he was delivered up because of our offenses and he was raised for our justification. Our religion ain't like anybody else's. It's a redemptive religion wherein the forgiveness of Christ cleanses, or the blood of Christ cleanses us and brings us forgiveness, and then that righteousness of Christ clothes us and fits us to be accepted in that age to come. So if you have not believed the gospel, may I encourage you to come to the one who laid down his life for the sheep. Nobody constrained him. There was no gun to his head. He laid it down willingly, as he says in John 10. And in that, he is glorified. In that, the father is glorified. In that, the father glorifies the son. So may you, by grace, look to him in faith and have everlasting life. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of this upper room discourse and the emphases that our Lord puts forth. We thank you for the glory of the Son of God. We thank you for this encouragement to love as we ought one another. And as well, may we take heed with reference to this denial by Peter. We know in the latter pages of this, this gospel that, that these, this prediction of our Lord certainly does come true. But even in that, you didn't cut him off. And we rejoice in your grace. We rejoice in your loving kindness. We rejoice in your protection of us. Bless and strengthen each one here. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, let us stand and close our service this morning by singing 572. 572, unto the praise and glory of our triune God. and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Our blessed Father, we thank you for this time to gather for corporate worship. We ask that you would bless this coming hour when we eat together, when we drink together, and we just thank you and praise you for the good gifts that you have imparted to us. May you be glorified and may you be honored and may you be praised. And we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, please be seated for a brief time of meditation. After the music ceases, you're welcome to please go upstairs and help yourself to the food.